out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes. As always, we love to give you the finest in indie pop. We also love a good interview. This time it is going to be the turn of the razor cuts because I spoke to Tim Vass very recently, recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and life also in an indie band. So this is the interview and after a little bit of chin chat <laughs> chat, and uh, getting to know each other, we got down to the exciting subject that was, um, yes, the golden years of indie pop, which I put down between 83 to 87, and um, yes, pointed out that the razor cuts, their lifespan was roughly the same. So, this is the interview, and this was Tim's reply. Tim, it's over to you. Yeah, we were. Um, we tend to date razor cuts from about 1985 till when we split up in 1990, but Greg and I had known each other for a good few years before that. And actually, we first played in bands together in the late 70s. Um, we, we grew up in Luton. Uh, we were working class boys who met in the pub. And uh, we formed a band very early on within a few days of, of meeting. Uh, we played our first gig within three or four weeks of, of me first bu- buying a bass guitar. So it was very much a sort of, uh, you know, a punk thing. We were inspired by punk to form our first band. And uh, it was all about getting up there and doing it, you know. And uh, and that was uh, that was how we how we met and how we first started playing. Yeah. But it was a few it was a few years after that really that um, that the Razor Cuts sort of got going as 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 the band that that people know and remember. You know, yeah. Before that. Well, so so what were you listening? What was your you know the teen the years? Well, I say teen years. You know when you were about ten, eleven. What did you start? Um, you know, listening to what was on your kind of radar of things to, uh, you know, that you started to watch either on Top of the Pops or listen to on, on Radio 1 or Radio 2, depending if your mum had Radio 2 on. <laughs> I think it was the home service and the uh, the light programme, actually, when I was a child. Um, but, um, yeah, um, I was... I, I was I grew up in the in the sixties and seventies. Um, I, I got into music at a very very young age. Um, I bought um, I, curiously. I, I started buying Joe Meek records um, in the late sixties when I was when I was about eight or nine years old. Don't quite know why. Um, I had, think I had a neighbour who had Telstar by the Tornadoes and yeah. um, loved the sort of unearthly sound of it. So um, I used to buy second-hand sort of you know i don't know how much they were 10p or something second-hand 45s from a, a little shop near the football ground in Luton, and i looked for anything that had joe meek's name on it so i bought a lot of records by the tornadoes um and the outlaws and these kind of weird instrumental groups and that was kind of my the first thing i really got into it's a bit strange i know but um but that was the, that was my um, my my first sort of record buying, but I was very young. I was only sort of eight or nine at the time. So by the time punk came along and I started playing in bands, I'd already been collecting records for probably ten years or something. Um, and it, throughout the seventies, uh, I was I was very into sort of arty glam. I liked um, I liked Cockney Rebel and Bebop Deluxe and Roxy Music. I saw Roxy Music when I was very young with Eno um, uh, on synthesizer. In, um, 
so I was very into that sort of auntie glam stuff. Um, but I also, curiously, I liked um, I liked kraut rock as well. I was um, I, I was very into um, early craft work and noi and things like that. So I had very eclectic taste for a, for a young teenager growing up in the seventies. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, by the time punk came along, it felt as though something needed to happen with the music scene. Um, although I'd been into music myself for many years. The idea of actually playing in a band had always sort of seemed like, you know, a, a, a ridiculous thing. You, you had, in those days, the music press um, liked to sort of portray musicians as being like classically trained. And, and it was all Eric Clapton and being able to play blues licks and all that sort of stuff. So the idea of actually being in a band was was pretty un, unlikely for someone like me. But punk came along and kind of changed all that. And, and as I say, when I met Greg with a couple of my other mates in the pub and we decided to form a band, um, it was just all about getting up and doing it. And so after I, I bought a bass guitar in a, in a charity shop for about 10 quid, and um and within a couple of weeks really of 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 buying my first guitar we were doing our first gigs i mean you can imagine how terrible they were but um but it was it was it was all it was great to be part of that fun and excitement of um as i say you know joining in and and making something happen yes well it's interesting because i i suppose it was kind of the late 60s i became more aware of music and it was kind of that thing of uh, i suppose being at home with my mum because she was doing the housework, it seemed to be all the time. And, uh, you know, because we used to, you didn't have a proper washing machine. You had one of those twin tubs that was in the middle of the kitchen. And I just remember her playing Radio 2 and things like the Jimmy Young show. And I think I, I started to get a love for that kind of 60s sound of Burt Backrack. And then the 70s came along and I've obviously getting a bit more conscious of music and loved the glam period and Alice Cooper. And it was, thankfully, David Bowie was my first single, Space Oddity. But I had an older brother who was seven years old and he introduced me to that world that was not directly because he he refused, he bought records and he wouldn't let me play them but I had to wait until he was out of the house and then I'd get his Yes albums and Genesis albums and Barclay James Harvest and loved them so I then you know like you were saying about sort of having to be really ta- you know like making music seem to be otherworldly didn't it because you know not only did you have to have a Roger Dean cover you had to be able to play classical licks within a you know 20 minute pop song you know which seemed beyond it so punk did sort of kick that completely out of the water really didn't it because you know like you were saying about sort of how music seemed and that Eric Clapton the blues licks and being able to bend a note which was incredibly you know talented but really kind of you know, not everyone's going to be Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or Rick Wakeman, in fact. So, um, yes, punk did did have a huge influence, which I suppose, yeah, would seem weird to people now. But at the time, you know, it must have felt like a huge kind of breath of fresh air. Yeah. And the brilliant thing was that a lot of those people who, who, who informed bands because of punk, they very quickly moved outside the confines of the sort of three chord punk thing. And, and, and in the, the post-punk era, in the you know, the kind of late, late 70s and early 80s, you had all these people who'd, who'd been part of the punk scene, but they, they went off and started doing their own things. And, you know, the, the one that everyone knows these days is Joy Division, but, you know, they, they were only one of countless bands from that era, you know, on the Factory label and the Zoo label in Liverpool, Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunnymen. And then, of course, you had Orange Juice and Joseph Kay and so on in Glasgow. And all these people were, 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 were bands that had grown out of punk. But, but over the, the next sort of 
three or four years or so, it, it, it was splintered in lots of really exciting um, directions. And it was a really great time. And, and I, I do think that if punk hadn't happened, a lot of those people probably would never have formed bands. So, um, you know, it was it was great for the, for the music scene. I mean, after that, you know, I have to say, I think as the 80s wore on, I became less and less interested in, in what was actually happening musically. But there was a little period immediately after punk for maybe three or four years when there was lots of really exciting stuff happening. Yes. So when did you, you know, you sort of formed various bands and then the 80s appeared and you had that kind of, I suppose, on one level you had um, a bit of a post-punk thing with, that actually seemed quite complicated stuff as well, like Magazine and Gang of Four and Peel. But then you had, like you said, kind of the world that was Orange Juice and um, Postcard Records, which got back to that kind of more classic indie scene. So when did you feel like, yes, we are more of an indie band than a post-punk, slightly scratchy band? Um, we recorded a single in about 1982 um, as, under the name The Cinematics, Greg and I, with, um, with a friend of ours called Colin on drums. Um, and it, was, it wasn't it was a punk record by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it was kind of vaguely influenced by the, the kind of DIY scene, TV, TV personalities and people like that. Um, but also we'd been listening to postcard stuff and, and Greg had, had learned down to play a nice kind of um, frantic jangly guitar sort of style. So we used that on it as well. I mean, you know, the record isn't a great record by any means, but you can see some of the influences starting to come to play there. Yes, absolutely. So then, you know, because then you had that world that... Because when... Because a lot of people I've interviewed for the 80s, they, they mentioned sort of four bands as being hugely influential. There was like Orange Juice, The Smiths, The Go-Betweens and June Brides. Did you, were you kind of, um, did those kind of bands and sounds, did they, did they sort of inspire the kind of the blueprint that was the Razor Cuts? Um, Orange Juice were, were a big influence on us in the sort of pre-Razor Cuts period, really. I think by the time razor cuts hit the ground and we and we were up and running um it was it was more a kind of combination of the 60s stuff that we liked um with with a, a bit of a sort of a punk thing going on as well especially on the early razor cuts records i was a huge fan of the buzzcocks greg like generation x um we we had this idea of um a kind of a, a slightly sort of poppy take on punk that we'd been developing for years when we played in punk bands. And that was all part of the sound when Razor Cuts first started. But as we went along, we were more and more um, influenced by, especially um, American folk rock from the 60s. We were huge fans of the Birds, but we also liked people like the Bo Brummels um, and, and various other um, folk rock type bands, the Turtles, all that kind of stuff we were really into. I was massively into psychedelia as well. So I, I always have been. It's always been a, um, a big part of my musical listening. It's been English and American psychedelia from the 60s. Uh, and I was really into that stuff as well. But actually, in terms of, I think in terms of stuff that was going on at the time, uh, yeah, I love the go-betweens. Um, but I think for, for, for both of us, it was the, it was the early creation scene. Um, we were we used to go to Alan McGee's club, the living room, um, and I used to go there pretty much every night that it was on. So for every Friday and Saturday night, I was there. Um, and uh, a lot of the the bands that played there that were, were kind of the support bands that we were that I really loved. I loved the Jasmine Minks. Um, June Brides did play there a lot. Um, the Loft um, 
played there a lot as well. Um, and those bands were great. And, and also they were really nice people. So you got to hang out with the, the guys who were in these bands. And there was a little, for a little while, there was a little bit of a sort of clandestine um, group of people who, who kind of got on. I mean, the living room was a strange thing, really, because a lot of the time there weren't actually that many people there. Um, but it was a real big influence on on the on the indie scene of the mid eighties because practically everybody who was there was in a band. Um, <laughs> yes. and Greg, Greg and I were, were, were sort of desperate to be part of the creation thing, and we you know we we recorded demos with, with, with Joe Foster, who at that time was in the TV personalities, but he also produced a few creation records singles. Um, and we you know we did that really to try and get Alan McKee to sign us, and then initially Alan wasn't interested in, in signing us you know we, we got on great we drank together all the time and, and went to gigs together and hung out together and stuff but um you know i think he felt we needed to, to just develop our sound a little bit yeah um, and that was, how, that was how we ended up on on, on subway records i think you know our, <laughs> our big desire was to be operation to be honest which of course was where we ended up a couple of years later but um but yeah that whole scene with um with those bands and and hanging out with those people you know primal scream were part of that scene as well. Jesus and Mary Chain came down and played at the living room in front of about twelve people. Um, you know, all of that was going on at that time, and and it was a it was a brilliant time for music. And as I say, it was great to hang out with those people who were all in bands and all became really influential on the kind of next generation of of bands coming along behind who perhaps were a little bit younger. Yes, and you must be amazed that um, because it, yeah, because the living room I didn't go there, but. You know, obviously heard about it since, and Neil Taylor, who who put together that cassette for the NME, the C eighty six cassette, long alongside a few other people. I mean, he mentions the living room quite a lot as this kind of incredibly kind of yes, I suppose it's like one of those, I don't know, people who bought the Velvet Underground album. You know, there weren't probably many, but everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people who bought it, you know, went on to do do some quite interesting things. So it, it sounded like it was a catalyst for sort of a lot of ideas and a lot of people. Did you did you get the feeling that you were sort of on some sort of zeitgeist during that period? You know, did you think, God, this could be special? Or did it just feel like just the normal thing to be doing when you were that age? Um, it was a, a brilliant place to go. Um, and Alan McGee, uh, definitely had something about him which made you think that something might be about to happen i mean alan was amazing actually because i remember when he put out the first record on creation and it, it was a single by the legend um known later as everett true the, the writer now now he's a brilliant guy um the legend <laughs> but it's not the greatest record you've ever heard you know and um but Alan used to say, you know, this record's going to be, this record label is going to be huge. You know, we are going to be huge. We're going to have hit records and stuff. And I used to kind of look at him and think, really, Alan, are you sure about this? But he had this incredible self-belief, you know, and it, obviously it took a, a few years for that to come to fruition. You know, later on when he, you know, they, he signed My Bloody Valentine and House of Love and, you know, uh, Mary Chain and, and then later on, obviously, Oasis were all on creation. But at that time, you know, when it was just, it was a, a few singles by by The Loft and, and the Jasmine Mints and Biff Bang Pow, you know, it was like, it, it was hard to believe that it was going to grow into a, a big sort of label and a, you know, a subsidiary of Sony or whatever. But, um, but, uh, but he had huge belief. But at the time, it was just, it was just a fantastic place to hang out. You know, it was just a really, really, really good place to go. Um, and there wasn't a lot else happening at that time because the, the post-punk I was talking about earlier had died out a little bit. 
Um, and so it was um, it, 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 the, the, the best things that were happening were, were mainly around that, that creation scene, you know? Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, especially though with the ones who are in the sort of early 80s period, I mean, there was, there was a sort of a you know, a bit of a, a predictable, slightly predictable narrative of, you know, there was a lot of unemployment at that stage because we'd sort of, Thatcher had got in in sort of 79 and then there'd been the Falklands and then there was the miners' strike and, you know, they so the government had put together various things to try and sort of kind of, I suppose, massage the figures. So there was the Enterprise Alliance and Job Seekers Alliance and so people were able to sort of claim the Bob Dole. And, um, yeah, sort of almost, I think one of them, the Enterprise Alliance, gave people a year to be sort of claiming, but sort of off the feet, you know, off the, off the numbers that would get published. And a lot of people, you know, went into bands because it was just like, well, there's nothing else to do, and so we'll just form a band. So that, that kind of helped. And then, you know, within that, sometimes to do with the lack of musical talent, would create quite an interesting sound to that produced a single that John Peel would pick up and find kind of quite interesting. And, and again, that was another another kind of, I suppose, not just a little step, because it was huge, you know, because I didn't realise the influence that, at the time that people like John Peel had. And then, you know, you had the NME with this amazing circulation, the Melody Maker, Record Mirror Sounds. So that, that all added to it. But there, there, those, a lot of cities and towns had, like, you know, indie nights, didn't they, or alternative nights. And that all helped to, you know, create and uh, sort of encourage a creative sort of world that was going on. Because a few people I spoke to, especially in London, there was quite a lot of squats going on. So there was kind of cheap accommodation and a few sort of slightly sort of uh, not dodgy, dodgy venues, but sort of they wouldn't have passed health and safety, would they, let's face it. So um, I think there was, was it the ambulance station as well in London where I think Jesus and the Mary Chain had played as well. So, so it did sort of foster quite a quite an exciting vibe at the time. And I think John Peel, it was like having these uh, gatekeepers, really. You know, and John Peel was definitely one of those gatekeepers. Yeah, I think you're right. And all that, all, all the stuff you've just described was was real and was happening. But I, th- I think I'd have to say that there was probably a bit of a sort of middle class element to some of this as well. You know, some of the people that, that we knew that were in bands were. You know, they, in their in the daytime, they were you know they were civil servants or, or, or you know working in a, some sort of graphic design office or something or <laughs> or art students or you know that kind of thing. And uh, the, the, it was a big deal that the, um, the, the there were fanzines all over the country that a lot of them were created by quite young kids who were you know were at six or more or maybe in their early years at uni. You know, and they they, they were producing these these kind of DIY fanzines and that was really huge for us i mean you know the, the enemy was obviously very influential at that time but for, for bands like us we probably got our name known more through the, the kind of fanzine network and, and through the, the the sort of networks of people who were buying creation stuff buying subway stuff you know who, who, were, who were into that almost underground scene really because it was it was the living room was was pretty underground and um and a lot of this stuff was pretty underground but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to emphasize overemphasize the idea of it being sort of born out of, of squats and stuff you know i think there was an element of that but i think also there's a there was a slightly more middle class element to some of it as well with people uh, people who was you know who were, who, were, who were studying fine art at um at uni or whatever yes i would imagine i think um 
yeah, there's a few bands in Norwich which probably kind of are put into that. The Higsons probably, and possibly the Farmers Boys. But um, yeah, so when did you sort of feel that the band, you you know, because you got together with you and Greg and then you had various other members started to appear as well. Did, when did you sort of feel that you were making a sound that was was going to be kind of one you know people wanted to hear it who weren't just your you know the friends and family and anybody else you could kind of emotionally blackmail to go and see see the group you know because often having spoke to a lot of people it does take a while to create something that you think actually this is quite good we don't just sound like a covers band we were actually doing something quite unique yeah we we wanted to be part of that um that london scene the, the creation records living room scene and f- we were actually advised by um i think by by alan by alan mcgee to um to hook up with um with david swift um who was our, our first drummer in razor cuts um david was a journalist working at the nme he occasionally played drums with Biff bang pow um and they kind of pointed us in david's direction um david was a a, a great guy he was into julian cope and uh, he, he knew loads about the um the, the fantastic Kiwi bands, the, the Chills, and people like that, um, and uh, yeah, he 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 made a big difference to us because he was he was a really explosive drummer. So it it, it suddenly transformed our sound, and for for a while we were just a three piece with me me and Greg and, and David. Um, Joe Foster played with us uh, on and off for a while on, on guitar as well, um, but that that initial lineup was that was the was the band that kind of started to record the early razor cut stuff and, and play at various gigs in, in London and further afield. And I think that was that was the time when it started to feel, you know, like it was it was much nearer to what we wanted to do. Um and it was, you know, it was not long after that really that um that we recorded the stuff that ended up being the, the subway singles. Um yes. Martin so when, put so subway when did, label. So when did you get that um because it was sorry to embarrass you and summer in your heart. You got that together in in sort of '86 on Subway. Um, so by then, you'd obviously sort of started to create a sort of a, a bit of a catalogue of kind of material. Did that did that come together quite easily? And did and also with your rec- the, your memory of recording it, did you were you pleased with the result of it? Because often getting a producer can be a bit tricky at times. Um, yeah, we had we had a batch of songs which which never actually got recorded that we used to play as a three piece which were uh, in uh, much more in a kind of buzzcocksy sort of poppy punk sort of style but with elements of of kind of 60s jangly guitars thrown in as well we had a few few songs of that kind of nature that, that we as i say we, di- we didn't get around to recording but in a, in that set we also had um, sorry to embarrass you. Summer in your heart. I'll still be there. Those songs, the ones that became the early singles. Um, Joe made a big difference actually, because when we went into the, the studio with Joe Foster, he, um, he Joe kind of turned up with a twelve-string guitar and and and, and overlaid these nice um, kind of jangly twelve-string riffs, and that that very quickly became part of our sound. It's something we wanted to do anyway, um, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we were, we were we were pretty pleased with the recordings. I think um, it was it was a curious time actually because um, it, it, you you had a bit of a ready-made audience really. If you if you brought out something that was um, that was in that kind of um, style, um, and obviously it helped that we were on um, a label that had nice fold-over sleeves and plastic covers that looked a bit like creation records looked like and and all that kind of stuff so it was um 
it was it was easy to kind of fit in with what was already going on. But um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we we were pleased with the sounds of the records. We were we were certainly, I think, throughout our whole, entire career, we were better in the studio than we were live. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, that it was it, that was good. We would get a lot better. With, you know, when, when we made the albums and, and and the later records, we were we we were far far better in the studio and we worked with people who really got the best out of us but those early singles they had a, you know they had a kind of energy and they were very of their time and they certainly appealed to a certain type of person you know i think there was something about greg singing and, and the lyrics and and the kind of style of the music that that kind of appealed to people um and and that got us a little bit of a following and it, it enabled us to do the stuff that we did later yes because because one thing that i'd sort of sort of found from from doing this is that um you know there's that kind of you know the five-year narrative and and one of the things that sort of knocked a lot of bands out during that period of 87 88 was the the sort of the musical landscape was changing a bit but so you know like the smiths and various other bands had been around for a while and obviously things were going slightly difficult but there was also the kind of the, the ecstasy world was coming in so the music press and people wanted the next thing, which was going to be, you know, dance music like um, the Happy Mondays and uh, the Soup Dragons and Primal Scream. So then, yeah, so that that kind of created a bit of a problem for bands who would bring out other albums, and suddenly it's like the journalists didn't really weren't that interested anymore because it had sort of been done. So when you were bringing out that first album on Creation Storyteller. Did you feel a little bit like, oh my God, we've almost we're starting to miss the party here, or was that wasn't was that not the case? Not quite at that point in time, because I think uh, you know when we were recording uh, the Storyteller album, um, Stone Roses hadn't really done anything apart from I think one single maybe. Um, Happy Mondays didn't really exist. You know that whole kind of baggy thing hadn't really quite got off the ground at that point in time. It was just a little bit before that. Um, but the other thing was that, yeah, I mean, I, I thought most most mu- modern music was was terrible at that point in time. I had no interest in acid house. I had no interest in in hip hop or any of that stuff. Didn't listen to it. Didn't care about it. All I really cared about was the sixties music that I was listening to. And, and Greg was the same. So when we went into the, into the studio to record Storyteller, we couldn't really care less about what, what was going on anywhere else. We were just in our own little world where we wanted to make a record that that you know would could stand alongside. Notorious Bird Brothers, or um, or, or um, you know something like that. That was that was, that was what we were aiming to achieve. Yes. Uh, so we, so it, it, none of that other none of that stuff really impinged on us. And actually, whereas maybe a year or two earlier, I'd been I'd been kind of a lot more aware of what was going on, especially in the early creation period. By the time it got to like eighty seven, eighty eight, we were recording stories at that. Um, I didn't really, wasn't really listening to music to be honest. Yes, well, I guess when you're a musician and you're you're in the in a band and you're you're either in the studio writing or trying to play live, you know, you're probably not the last thing you want to listen to is what what your contemporary is and what's happening, because you probably just would rather listen to either Bulgarian folk music or something completely different or just nothing really. I guess so. So when you went in the studio to do Storyteller, how do you got all the were all the songs there? You know, you got them all sort of rehearsed you know, written, everything was there and you were just ready to sort of go in and do it almost straight away? Or did you work them in the studio at all? No, it was pretty much written. We we, we sort of put it together as an album, really. So we had, a, we had a, a few songs that we'd been playing live and we kind of had an idea of where they would go on the album. And then we kind of we kind of almost created the rest of the album around it. So we wanted, you know, a, 
a, a blend of moods, a blend of different, slightly different styles, you know, still all around the same kind of basic template of kind of folk rock and jangly guitars and, and choruses and melodies. You know, we were big, really big on strong melodies. Um, but we, we created it as a, as a kind of whole thing, really. Um, you know, we, we knew which track was going to be the end track. We knew, we knew which track was going to be the first track and all that kind of stuff before we went into the studio. Um, I hadn't written all the lyrics. Um, I remember, you know, sort of sitting outside the studio, desperately writing down the last few bits of lyrics before before Greg went in to sing them. But a lot, most of it was in place. Um, and as I say, it was, it was kind of created as, a, as an entity, really. Yes. And who was your producer for that? Um, we we recorded it in Leamington Spa with um, with John Rivers. Um, we'd re- we'd previously done an EP there, the Heard You the First Time EP, um, and we loved the sound that he got on that EP. Um, we we almost regarded him as being like an ancillary member the, of the band. Really, he played he played Hammond organ. He had a fantastic Hammond organ with a massive Leslie cabinet in the studio, which he used to play in bands in the sixties and early seventies. Actually, so he he could play in this really authentic. Um, kind of 60s Hammond style and he put these fantastic pads behind the behind the um, the jangly guitars that just really lifted everything and he really understood what we were trying to do he was brilliant and so after we'd done the um, the EP we were desperate to go back there and record the album um, Creation didn't want to give us vast amounts of money so we had to record it fairly quickly um, but it was yeah it was a fantastic experience recording it there there with John. Um, so J- John um, had, had done loads of indie stuff. Um, not long before we went into his studio, he'd recorded the first Pastels album. But before that, he did a lot of um, stuff for kind of Rough Trade and and small indie labels. So he'd done things like Ivers in Gaza um, and People on the Glass label um, uh, and all of that stuff that I was. I was familiar with Bangled in Embrace. He um, he recorded all of their stuff, and um, it, it was it was all part of that post punk era that I was talking about earlier. So we're talking about around about eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. Um, Rivers had been involved in loads of really good records that you know, pretty obscure records, but but great records. Um, so it was it was really nice to go in and work with him, and he was just he was just a hilarious guy as well. Great fun to work with. And, um, yeah, we had a brilliant time recording that album. Yes, and because you often get, you know, sort of put in the same category as some of the Sarah record label um, bands like Tallulah Gosh, and you played with a member from Heavenly, didn't you, Peter? Is it Mont Mont Montchalov, yeah, great friend of mine. Uh, They were our mates, really, um, Tallulah Gosh. Um, So at the time, Greg was actually seeing um, Liz, who was one of the the two girl singers in in Tallulah Gosh, we did loads and loads of gigs with them. We hung out with them all the time, um, and the, yeah, I mean they're they're our, they're our friends. They still are. Uh, I don't see them as often as I'd like, but um, but that crowd, they were friends of ours. They, they 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 were from Oxford, and we or they were based in Oxford, and we we were kind of semi based in Oxford as well, really. So some of the people who who joined the band as we went along um, were were either living in or came from Oxford. Um, so that was that kind of became our second base of operations, really. Um, but yes, um, yeah, we were very close to that crowd, and um, so did loads of gigs with them, especially in the early days. Yeah. Um, but end, on our last tour, actually, we were still we were playing with Heavenly on our last tour just before we split up. So um, right throughout the whole sort of five years or so of of, um, of Razor Cuts, we were we we played with um, Zudagosh and then and then Heavenly and Heavenly and their various incarnations. So, uh, so that was nice. So what, a bit what, of 
Yeah, so absolutely. And what was the sort of a, a typical Razor Cuts fan? Was it a little bit... Were you a bit... You know, because though you were on Creation, were you a bit more sort of spiritually connected with Sarah, that kind of vibe of Sarah Records? Well, Sarah didn't really exist when we were... when we you know first got going um and uh obviously we did we did a, a flexi with Tallulah Gosh um in 87 I think it was um the same kaleidoscope flexi which was on the the Shalala flexi label which was like the forerunner to Sarah it was the first thing that Matt and Claire did before um in terms of releases before they started up Sarah so um yeah we, we knew um Matt and Claire they'd been to our gigs um and we'd, we'd played with people like the sea urchins and and the chesterfield and, um, and uh, st christopher and people like that so um you know we, we knew some of the bands um on sarah I, I, I didn't really feel a particular affinity with them because they they came along a little bit after us i mean only not by a huge amount of time but a year or two later um and by the time sarah was up and running I think we were off into our own little world of, of thinking we were the birds, really. So, um, so it didn't it didn't have too much of an influence on yes. us. Yes, God. And but, what, but, what I was going to say, what I mean with your live shows, I mean, were you building quite a reputation at that stage? Um, yeah, I, playing live was curious because we we would you know we were talking earlier about this 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 kind of network of people around the country. Um, we quite often got invited to go and play at clubs up and down the country that were that were run by people in their hometowns, and and it, and it was really good because there were there were individuals who wanted to make something happen in the the town where they lived or the town where they grew up, and they would they would put on these these gigs in these various venues around the country. But the weird thing was, until you turned up there, you didn't know whether there would be you know twenty people in the audience or, or two hundred. And I, I can remember on one occasion we played, I think it was Lincoln, uh, and we played York quite closely together, you know, within within a few weeks of each other. And, you know, I kind of thought of them as being similar kind of places, you know, old historic cathedral towns, you know, and I kind of thought the gigs would be vaguely similar. But um, in York, there were loads and loads of people um, and they clearly knew the songs, a lot of them as well. And it was, you know, it was a really good gig. And I remember people throwing confetti over the stage at the start of the gig. It was really good. Um, and then the Lincoln gig, um, there was literally 20 people there, I think. And we played with um, Pop Will Eat itself, actually. And um, and it was, you know, it was just really weird. You, you never really quite knew, knew what was going to happen when you turned up to play these places. Um, but, yeah, as I, as I said earlier, I think we were better on record than we were live. Um we were pretty energetic live, really, um, and you know, we, I used to like chat to people before before we went on. Yeah, so, I was, yeah, I was going to. Yeah. Bra- Sorry, yeah, go on, I was going to say, I suppose that you know, in, in my in that slightly simplistic narrative of, of that kind of time and, and the gatekeeper, but you're right about those clubs. You know, um, a lot of places. You know, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, especially because that was probably when venues, you know, thought, God, no one's going to come out. But we could put an indie night and Norwich had one called the Wild Club that developed and they put on three gigs on, I think, on a Monday night. And the art centre was really delighted because it's like no one else is going to come out. But lots of 18 to 20, 24 year olds will come and see the band if they've either read about them in the NME or John Peel has played them. So you 
you probably guarantee it between 150 to 250 people most of, most Monday nights. And I think that also helped create, give people that opportunity to sort of, I suppose, meet a whole different audience and also have an experience of playing live. But obviously there must be some nights where, where there was only 20 people and some nights when it was absolutely rammed. So, yeah, it was quite interesting. You know, the fact that the, those things existed. And I think people like myself, would take a bit of a chance because you think, well, it's only 3.50 and it's, you know, they, they look fine. They've got silly... Most of them got slightly silly names. That They must be good. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, it, it was exactly as you describe. I think um, I think there was, at that time, there was a bit of a circuit um, and you'd see, you know, you'd, you'd turn up and, and, and the bands that had been playing there the previous week or going to play the following week were people that you knew you know and they they would be bands that were on similar labels and, and probably had a similar sort of profile you know so um so that was definitely what was going on yes yeah. so how did you then you know the next stage which is often a bit tricky because then you're onto that the famous second album syndrome so what was kind of um because you brought out a compilation didn't you patterns on the water and another one on um was it matina record recordings are for razor cuts yeah, that that was all. Much, all that stuff was much later. So, um, patterns on the water was a was a, a compilation that Creation put out a few years later, actually. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. The the, the 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 next step for us was our was our second album. Um, so um, that was called The World Keeps Turning, um, and uh, even more so, I think, when we came to record The World Keeps Turning, we weren't really paying much attention to anything else that was going on in the music scene. Um, but we we did try and branch out a bit from what we'd done with the first album, and uh, and it, the second album contains a, a wider range of, of styles, I think. Um, and we, you know, we picked up things from our record. But, you know, all the people involved in the band had extensive record collections, so we were always, um, you know, looking at other things that we can expand into. But um, so we we tried a few different things on the on the second album. It was still it was still built around. Um, the same kind of um, general worldview, if you like. So, um, so, so my lyrics was were still concerned with, um, you know, the way I saw the world. And, and I think by the time we recorded the second album, I was I was much angrier about a lot of the things that were going on. And so, and that comes across in the lyrics. I think it's a much more um, angry and 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 almost despairing at times actually in 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 terms of the lyrics and some of the music kind of reflects that as well it it, it, there aren't as many up-tempo songs on the second album it's a more kind of moody uh album i think and uh and yeah it was uh I don't know what I don't really know what people would have made it made of it at the time because we'd we'd come a long way since Big Pink Cake and and Summer in Your Heart, you know, and we'd we'd, we'd create we were creating this kind of autumnal sound full of kind of you know ringing guitars and John's Hammond organ and sometimes string arrangements, you know, and it was all it was all quite um, it, it, it it was meant to be it was meant to be our reflection of the way that we felt about the way the country was and, and and the way things were. You know, you mentioned earlier about the Thatcher years. Well, by the time we recorded our second album, we were coming towards the end of the 80s. And we'd had, you know, we'd had years of, 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 of the horror of, you know, Reagan and Thatcher and and, uh, and all of that. And um, and it, it was it was quite a strange time to be um, 
to be, you know, we we weren't that young anymore either. You know, we were kind of in our late twenties, so we 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 become, I guess, you know, quite almost world weary in the way that late twenty something sometimes are. You know, and all of that is reflected in in the record. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm making it sound like an incredibly depressing record, which it, it isn't by any means. You know, because anyone who knows these cuts will know that. Um, the thing we did was was catchy songs, you know. So it's full of catchy melodies and um, and it's full of um, you know songs that you can sing along to, kind of thing. So it's not a depressing listen by any means. But 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 there was certainly uh, an ele- an element to that second album where we were, you know we we were feeling quite quite angry and, and um, we wanted to we wanted to get that across. Yeah. So when when you went to record it and it, you'd written it. I mean, was there a sense that you you were feeling this was going to be your last album? Because because soon after that you do kind of you split up in nineteen ninety, so there there wasn't that much between that coming out and then you know calling it a day. So was there was there a sense? Were you looking to see if this was going to sort of take you to the next level, or did you? Because you said you were in your late twenties by then, and sometimes feeling like actually I need to get some money together. Or I need I need to get a you know, I need a change, and this band is is kind of isn't kind of helping that kind of progression or or change. So I just wondered if how you were feeling when you went to record it. Uh, no, none of that really. Um, I, I never I never saw being in a band as being a career. It was always something that I did for fun, and I did it because I love music, and I did it because I wanted to create records that would. I could put on my shelves next to the records that I loved. You know, that that was why I was in a band. It wasn't a career at all. And I don't think we were feel, we felt like we didn't feel that the band was coming to an end or anything when we recorded the record. It was just it was the next step. Um, and uh, and actually, um, I think listening to it now, um, you know, it, it does feel like um, you know the next step, and it feels like not so much. It may maybe a little bit. It feels like a, it feels like a culmination of what we were doing, but we didn't feel like that at the time. And in fact, actually, after we after we'd finished. Um, recording the second album we we carried on write, writing songs and our, our plan was to do uh, an ep or a, or a mini album next um and we had we had the songs half written actually for that for that next release but um i think what happened was that during the period not not when we recorded the second album probably about a year later um we just felt like we wanted to do, we each wanted to do something different ourselves, I think. We we just, I was really, really into psychedelic music. Um, Greg wanted to do some other slightly different things. And, and it just reached the stage where I think we felt we wanted to, we wanted to go off and, and do some stuff under a, under a different name in our own names and, and, you know, and, and not be tied to the kind of Razor Cuts brand for a bit. Yes. Um, so that's what we did and neither of us stopped making music and we we didn't stop being mates you know and or anything like that it wasn't an acrimonious split we didn't hate each other or anything um we just we just went off and did some different music um and actually i think it was quite good that we did that because uh, you know a lot a lot of bands they go on for years and and you know that they they release records that are a pale imitation of the previous records and 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 maybe do things that are in a style that are vastly removed from you know the style that they started out with and we, we didn't really do any of that you know we, we we sort of when we when we when we brought razor cuts to an end we we left behind you know a group of records that we were proud of and we didn't we didn't we weren't embarrassed about anything we'd done and we um you know we so i think i think we think we we called it a day at the right time really and then we both went off and did other stuff and um you know I, 
we both made other records that we're proud of and were quite different as well in in many ways to Razor Cuts and uh, and it was all good. Yes, because you went on to do um, oh was it Red Chair Fade Away, wasn't it? Your next musical kind of adventure was it Red? Was that yes, Red Fade Away? Yes, named after my first Bee Gees album, Excellent. <laughs> which is a great album. Yeah, and did that feel? enjoyable because often when you know a lot of people finish with a band they kind of just want to have a bit of a break and not sort of think about it for a while but you sort of went straight into it did that was that was that kind of a part of a process that you were going through yeah it was it, it was very different for me because i didn't i didn't write any of the songs in red chair fade away um but i i was i was I was kind of the prime mover behind the sound and the production. And, and I played, I played lead guitar, which I hadn't done in Razor Cuts. And I also played all sorts of other mad in, instruments that, you know, bits of sitar and bits of, you know, Indian tambour and stuff and, and, and mad thumb pianos that I'd picked up and things. So we, um, with Red Chair Fade Away, it was, it was all about, um, you know, really going for it in terms of, psychedelia and and using studio effects and 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 you know really throwing in the kitchen sink kind of thing it's very very different musical approach to razor cuts um but i it was quite liberating for me because i wasn't writing the song so i was able to concentrate on just you know coming up with mad guitar parts and 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 thinking about mad ways of doing the production and where we could put backwards guitars and where we could um you know, mess about with the tapes to get interesting effects and so on. It was, it was all, yeah, you know, it was all song based. It was, it wasn't, um, it was, you know, it was all, it was all, um, it was all melodic and song based stuff, but very much with a, a full on psychedelic uh, production. Yeah, and is it the case that um, you've kind of kept your sort of hand in music for the last three decades or two decades? Yes, I'd have to use my fingers trying to work out. Nineties, yes, three decades. Have you still been sort of doodling away, making music and doing bits and pieces? I wish I could say yes, but but the answer's no. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I I did the Red Chair Fadeaway stuff. I did a I, after that I did an album under the name Dandelion Wine, which was pretty much a solo album that I did with various friends helping out and uh, playing various instruments. Um, and then after that I. I kind of didn't really do anything musically for for a good while. I, you know, I went off and had a family and and all that kind of stuff, and, and became a, a proper grown up perhaps for a little while. Um, I think I'd like to get back into it at some point. I mean, whether whether there'd be any market for you know music from somebody my age, I don't know. But um, but uh, yeah, I, it, it, I don't. Unlike some people, I, I didn't I didn't carry on um, indefinitely, if you like. I think I had a period of probably. 20 years from when I first started playing in bands with Greg to when I did my final studio stuff um, and then after that I, I kind of didn't do too much. You know, I still I get my guitar out occasionally and, and, and play but I don't um, I haven't recorded anything for, for a long time. Yes and what would you say to a, an 18 year old self that was kind of starting out on a musical journey or any a creative journey? I mean something that you know you thought god yes after after that experience what you would have you know what you learned that you thought yes that was that was quite an interesting one well well it's in, well, it's interesting isn't it because um i think i did exactly what i would have uh, told myself to do if you like if i went back and t- t- spoke to myself as an 18 year old i couldn't really give myself any advice music i could give myself lots of advice about other things but musically i couldn't really give myself any advice that i i didn't actually follow in my life because i i what i did was i i you know i, I made music with people that i really liked in a style that I really liked, 
I didn't worry about whether anyone else liked it particularly. So it wasn't so it wasn't a career. It wasn't about selling units. It wasn't about um, being dictated to by the marketplace or any of those things. It was just about making music that I wanted to make and that I thought, you know, other people might want to listen to. But more importantly, that I'd perhaps be able to look back on years later and and um, and have some pride in. And I, I do feel like that, you know, when I listen to the records that I made, um, most of them I'm reasonably proud of. So, so uh, yeah, it's a good thing. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's great to have a body of work and and to have been part of that world I mean like you know like you sort of slightly said I think during it you know when you're playing probably in it you're probably not aware of it and then you look back and think oh actually we were slightly part of that narrative that was kind of a musical kind of episode really wasn't it or chapter should I say you know where you you know you were part of that you know even though people didn't really always want to be referred to as the indie band from the 80s or the or whatever that scene was given you know in the in a way you know you do appear on those compilations don't you with a lot of the other bands at that time i know when they put in together that c86 cassette band people some people didn't want to be on it and there was the famous one of the june brides who said no way but then when they reissued it decades later they were oh yes we're, we're quite happy to be part of that now so um it's good, you know, it's, I suppose what I think is that you've, you know, you've created something and creating anything is quite amazing in this world, isn't it? I remember when we were um, in the studio recording the Storyteller album and speaking to Greg and, and saying, wouldn't it be brilliant if, you know, in, in 20 years time, people still want to actually listen to the record in the same way that, you know, that we listen to old records made in the 60s. You know, wouldn't it be great if people still want to listen to our records 20 years from now? And, you know, obviously that's that's now 30 years ago that we were having that conversation. Um, and so it, it, knowing that the, the records are, are about to be reissued on vinyl is um, it, it, it's gratifying. But also it, it takes me back to that conversation when we were talking about people perhaps, you know, listening to the records in decades to come. And I kind of hope that, you know, when the, um, when the reissues come out that you know they'll, they'll be bought not just by people who remember us from the time but perhaps by you know a, another generation um who perhaps weren't even born when uh when c86 was happening you know and that would that would be a cool thing um, um, yeah well absolutely i did notice on um spotify that which is great that your music is up there even though it probably doesn't give you any money but you do get a monthly listening the monthly listeners is 1420 so you think well that's that's amazing you know you've you know and sort of sorry to embarrass you has been played 26,000 times so you know it's I mean even though Spotify probably doesn't give anyone money it does keep the legacy and and the ability for fans to find it and then we all like a product don't we so you know a vinyl record or even a cd with a nice booklet can can sort of can yeah satisfy that part of uh, the consumer society yeah absolutely yeah and you're right um yeah it is uh, it is fascinating really to look at um not just spotify but you know but youtube and and all the various other platforms that people can use for for listening to music and to know that the stuff is out there is uh, is, is 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 brilliant and, yes uh, and it's and it, it's I was going to say it's great because actually, you know, it's one of those very easy to find things, isn't it? If, if you like Mighty Mighty or the 14 Ice Bears, you come across the razor cuts, you know, it's like, you, so it's kind of for the fan who's kind of curious, that kid in America or in Australia in the middle of nowhere, just looking and thinking, oh, you just discovered a new band. And that's when you're young, discovering a band that no one else has got, whether it's current or the past is still very exciting. 
Yeah, absolutely. I remember that feeling so well. But look, Tim, thank you ever so much for your time. And um, and when I when I do this, I'll I'll send you a link to the interview, and then you know you can always post it on whatever you know whatever page or platform you might want to if you want to and and that's fantastic but thank you again for your you know for giving me the time for this interview and did you just curious did you ever play in norwich do you know what i don't think we did play in norwich it's it's one of the few places that i can't actually remember us playing in i'm just i was just racking my brains actually to think if we ever did play in norwich but i don't think we did did you play ipswich or essex the uh, is it the harlow square yeah we played at the square in harlow um yeah but not not norwich that's that's curious isn't it <laughs> yeah i know uh, yes i think well at the time and perhaps it's still the case i mean it is a little bit out of the way i think for bands but i'm saying that there's still quite a there was quite like other places that were out of the way we played all sorts of weird and wonderful places but i don't know why we didn't play in norwich we did you know. manage have you managed to sort of document and keep your kind of whatever archives that you have you know in one place kind of safe yeah we yeah we have i mean I, i've got a record of a pretty much complete record of all the gigs that we did and we've got photos and stuff but i mean the great thing is that the um the, the vinyl issues that are coming out they've got um they've, they've each got big booklets in them storyteller 16 pages and well keeps turning i think it's 12 pages 12 by 12 booklets you know with loads and loads of stuff in them photographs new bits and pieces that greg and i have written um and uh, a timeline that shows when all the records came out and everything so they're, they're packed with information so they're, they're kind of definitive in that sense i mean obviously yes. as, as a record collector myself there's no substitute for owning the original versions of things but these new reissues of the, of the two albums you know, in their gatefold sleeves with their booklets and their on-coloured vinyl and everything. They're, they're nice artefacts in their own right, but they do contain, as I say, a pretty complete history of the band across the across the two albums. So, um, so yeah, we, we, we have got all of that information and we've we've done our best to um, to uh, to put all that out there with the uh, with the new reissues of the records so that people can understand where we were coming from, what we were trying to do and how this fitted into what was going on at the time. Yes. And just lastly, who what label are you, you bringing these out on or who's who's put this together? They're on Optic Nerve. Oh, Optic Nerve, of course. God, I love that label. <laughs> They're amazing. They are fun because they've just put out a compilation of what's coming out this week or month. Um, the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, and uh, they've done an amazing job with that as well. Yeah, yeah, Ian's a good guy, and um, and yeah, like you say, they when they do things, they do them properly. Um, so yeah, we're really ex we're really excited about the reissues, um, and they're, we've we've put a lot of work into to making them as good as good as they can be. Oh, fantastic! I'm so pleased about that. I thought yeah, because there's a few late little late kind of labels of labels of love, really, aren't they? I know there's um, Fire Station Records, and there's another one in New York, one in Germany, and obviously Optic Nerve is the other one. And then you get Cherry Red, which is a bit of a different thing, but it's just great that some you know people are tracking down these. Um, releases to to bring out oh fantastic well I look forward to that that is good okay well tim thank you ever so much well, thank you david it's been an absolute pleasure yes and thank you for the invite no problem take care and um keep safe yeah cheers see you thank later bye-bye and that was me in conversation with tim vass from the razor guts a big thank you for giving me the time for that interview this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also, um, yes, they've all been um, archived. So you can also find these on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just to at C86show. C86show. They're all there. Anyway, I'll have to say goodbye. Have a great week. <laughs>